Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 31. This is the word of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Father, this morning as we come before your holy presence and we unpack this word, I pray, Lord, it would be impactful, that it would be powerful, that you would just really get into our hearts and help us to answer the question of who this Jesus is and what do we do with him. We know, Lord, that he had to go to the cross, he had to die so we could be reconciled to you. But as we read this, the pain that comes to our hearts We just pray, Lord, now that you would just help us to grip with this, to understand this, and learn more. In your name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Growing up, every Saturday, we would make pizza, and we would watch movie. And typically, those movies would be westerns, and lots of westerns. My dad loved westerns. Whether it was older with your Jimmy Stewart's and your Gary Cooper or even my namesake Gregory Peck. Or it's the later ones with John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Randolph Scott. We loved the westerns. My dad loved the westerns. But there's something interesting about westerns. Once you've watched one, you've watched every western. I've got favorites, of course. Rio Bravo, one of my favorites of all time with John Wayne and Dean Martin. Love that movie. But then there's also my other favorite, Pale Rider, Clint Eastwood, and that's, that's a spiritual movie, right? Straight out of Revelation. But everything happens the same. At the end, the guy shoots everybody and they win, period. I don't really have to watch the first hour and 30 minutes of those movies. I can turn on the last 15 minutes and see the entire story in five minutes. Sometimes we know the ending, but we still enjoy the journey to get there. Sometimes we're surprised by the journey and how we get there. The night that I proposed to my wife, I warned her a couple times, honey, I'm going to propose to you tonight. You need to be ready for this. And prepare me too, if you're going to say no, by all means. I'm playing way above the rim, but please be prepared, because I'm going to ask you to marry me tonight. We see this in other things. We hear a news story, and sometimes we know the ending before it ever happens. We know what's going to happen in our story today. We know Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be hung on a tree. He's going to be hung on a tree. This has to happen. If this doesn't happen, we're not here this morning. There is no forgiveness of sin. We are still under the curse of death. So as we read this story and as you think about this, you know what the ending is. 
there's a little surprise. There's a little shock. But don't go blaming Pilate and saying he could have stopped this whole thing. Don't go look at the Jewish people and say they could have stopped themselves. No, this was preordained. Jesus knew coming in, the Jewish authorities and the Roman government were going to kill him. He told us this three times already in Matthew. And he's going to tell us we're going to see it coming true today. So that's the backdrop. As you listen today, think about this. Jesus had to go to the cross. He was going to get there. That was the end game of this. He is going to the cross. Now, where are we? Last week, Rick took us. We were in the garden after dinner. So there was the Last Supper. They go to the garden to pray. Remember, and this is where some of our disciples, you know, don't have their best. They fall asleep a little. And Jesus is taken, and he's taken to the high priest. And throughout the night, he is shuffled between Ananias and Caiaphas. He's shuffled between their houses, and they proceed to have a trial. Now, whether this trial is legal or not is hotly debated. Most likely, this is not a legal trial because it did not happen during the daylight. And as most of us know, nothing good happens at night. So they are hiding something, and they are trying to convict Jesus. And they do. They successfully convict him of something. They convict him of being the son of God. Wow. He is the son of God. So they basically convict him for exactly what he is. But for them, since they don't believe he is, they say this is blasphemy. And for that, he deserves death. So now we're going to pick up in verse 1 here. It says, when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders and people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the government, the governor. Now we have our official condemnation here. Throughout the night, they have gone at him, but most likely this is the only official thing the Sanhedrin does the entire time. Everything else is probably illegal. They've done everything behind closed doors without anybody seeing, without any real witnesses, and they can't condemn him until the next morning. So they meet. First thing in the morning, the sun is just rising. They pull everyone together, and they have this five-minute meeting of, hey, let's get this guy going. Let's get him out of here. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. One is they don't want the people around. Remember the people, the people of Jerusalem that five, six days ago, they had honored Christ as a king as he came into Jerusalem. They put palm trees down. They love him. He heals them. He talks to them. He goes out to them, the exact opposite of what these leaders do. So they have to get this done before the people are up and there's a riot. So they do this very early in the morning. They convict him, and then they send him off to Pilate. At this point, it's pretty much done. We'll see. Pilate, he tries, but he's kind of a weak man, and we'll find out why. But at this point, he's pretty much condemned to death. Which brings us to our next story of Judas and what happens to Judas. Let's pick up in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Get out of here. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and he hanged himself. 
But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So here we have the fate of Judas. The fate of Judas is only two places, here and in Acts. And at the beginning of Acts, it looks slightly different. And it reads slightly different because it's a different perspective. It's Luke's perspective on this same thing that happened. But basically, Judas goes out in both situations and hangs himself, right? One of them says he bought a field. The other one, the priest bought the field. But if you're worried that these two different events and the way they're spoken of are different, don't worry, they're exactly the same. We have the fate of Judas. Now, we're also taking a slight detour from our timeline. So Jesus right now, is either being sent to the governor or more likely Jesus has already been sent to the governor and he's been condemned. This is probably after they're taking him to Golgotha to put him on the cross that Judas does this. He sees from afar Jesus is condemned. He sees that he needs to do something to stop it because he's wrong and he goes and he tries to stop this bad thing from happening. Now, it's interesting, this is one of two suicides that are recorded in the Bible. The other suicide is Ahithophel. Now, if you remember Ahithophel, he was David's counselor. It said his counsel was as of God. So when he spoke, it was like God speaking. That's what a counselor he was. And when David was kicked out and Absalom took over, Ahithophel gave Absalom some good advice that probably would have destroyed David, killed him, and gave Absalom the kingdom for good. Obviously, Absalom did not take his advice. And because of it, Ahithophel went and he hung himself. He put his affairs in order and hung himself. And we have Judas here too. Both of these are traitors. Both of these are people who have been traitors to their masters and at some point realized what they did wrong and they hung themselves to get out of it. Now let's start with he changed his mind. A lot of people say this is repentance. The word here is a word that can sometimes be used as repentance, but it's not. This is he changed his mind because he saw what was going on and he felt bad. Have you guys ever felt guilty before? That's what Judas is feeling. He's feeling guilty, but unlike guilt that leads to repentance, he's feeling the guilt of this doesn't feel good. I don't like this. I got to get rid of this. Can somebody take this away? Many times when we do something wrong, instead of actually turning and wanting repentance, we want to keep doing what we want to do. We just don't want to have the guilt. And that's exactly where Judas is right now. I don't like this feeling. Let's get rid of it. Maybe if I go back and talk to these guys, they'll take their money back and I can be clean and clear. Now, if we look at Peter, he's the exact opposite. When Peter realized what he had done, he broke down in tears He cries and he turns to the Lord. Instantly turns to the Lord. But Judas, eh, I'm wrong. I'll go talk to somebody else. They can help me out. So he doesn't turn to the Lord. That's very important here. Now we have to ask ourselves a question too. When we do something wrong, what do we do? 
Do we want to be like Peter and repent, fall down on our knees in front of the Lord and change? Or do we just want to change our minds and say, Lord, take away this guilt. I don't want to deal with that part. Just let me enjoy my sin just a little bit, and we'll do something else. Now Judas, he goes to the priest, and the first thing he does is monumental. He says, I betrayed innocent blood. The star witness in the case, the one who had brought Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the one who was absolutely wrong in all of this, comes before them and says, guys, I was wrong. Can I get my money back? Can we stop this? Think of this. Think of a major case going on now, today, and the star witness coming before them going, you know, I was paid by the judges to actually betray the man. What would happen? Instantly, that man would be released and there'd be a whole lot of lawsuits, right? Instantly. But what do the judges do in this situation? Instead of actually following through what they should do by law, they ignore him. So get out of here. If they did not have the Roman occupation, do you know who would be the first one to throw the first stone at Jesus to kill him? It would be Judas, since he's the star witness. But the star witness backs down and says, no, guys, he was innocent. What are we going to do about this? Can you help me out? We also learned something very interesting about these chief priests. They don't care. They got done what they wanted to get done. Mission accomplished. I don't care. Leave us alone. This is not our problem. This is your problem. You're the one that did it. Somehow they are transferring to Judas all of the guilt, all of the faults in this. They are somehow cleansed from this because it's his fault. Now get out of here. Now Judas in a temper tantrum takes the money and he throws it, it says, into the temple. Now it's, we got to be careful here. Judas didn't throw this into the courtyard in front of the temple where sacrifices are going on. Judas didn't throw this into the area where the money changers are selling things. He threw this into basically the holy area of the temple that only the priests could go, making a point. I'm going to throw this in here. You guys are going to have to go get that money. You guys are going to have to taint yourselves. You guys are going to have to get yourselves dirty. Now, it is a bit of a temper tantrum. Let's not kid ourselves. But he does it in a way that the priests have to touch and acknowledge this money. So he throws it into the temple where normal people can't go. He goes to a field and he hangs himself. Now, in order to tie it up to our axe, most likely what happens is he hangs himself and at some point the branch that he is hung upon snaps and he falls and basically his bowels explode as axe say. So Judas goes out and kills himself. What do the priests do? Well, let's talk about this for a second. First off, they acknowledge that this is blood money. Isn't that interesting? The priests know that Jesus is completely innocent. The priests know what they have done is completely wrong. And they acknowledge it. They get this money and they say, what are we going to do with this money? We can't put it back in to the treasury. It's blood money. Well, where did it come from in the first place? From the treasury. Why can't it go back there? Didn't they think of this the first time? What is going on? But the priests say, this is blood money, acknowledging the innocence of Christ. And they say that they cannot put it back into the treasury. 
So instead, they go out and they buy a potter's field. So what's a potter's field? Potter's field is basically a place where potters would go out and get clay from the land. This land, once the clay is pulled out of it, is probably worthless. It's a terrible piece of land. You don't really want this land. There's not much you can do with it. You can't any more plant on it. It's not used. There's no clay left in it. So basically think of a limestone quarry, right? We fill them with water and make them look like ponds. This would just be a big hole in the ground. They buy it and they're going to use it as a burial place for those that have come in from out of town. Gentiles coming from out of town. These Gentiles may be praising the Lord, but they are Gentiles and hence we're going to have a burial place for them. Not the nicest place to bury people either. And it's called the field of blood. Why is it called the field of blood? It's not because that's where Judas hung himself. It's called the field of blood because it was bought with blood money. Everybody in Jerusalem knew that this field is bought with blood money. Every single person in Jerusalem would then understand that Jesus is completely innocent of everything they said against him. The field of blood. And to this day, it's called that. So Matthew's telling us, hey, everybody knows Jesus is innocent. Everybody knows that Judas was the bad guy and he was gone and he had betrayed his Lord. Jesus is completely innocent. Hey, we all know the priests bought this field with blood money. They paid Judas and Jesus is completely innocent. He's our perfect sacrifice. He has to be completely innocent in order for this to work. If they would have found some type of guilt with him, some real sin, again, the cross would never happen. So this had to happen. They had to find this. And then at the end here, we have this fulfilled prophecy. Now, I would love to geek out for the next half hour and talk to you guys about why It talks about Jeremiah instead of Zechariah here. I would love to go into some technical details, but you would fall asleep, and I don't want that. So let's skip all that. Let's say this. Jeremiah is considered a more prominent prophet than Zechariah. Hence, just like in Mark, we see with Isaiah and Malachi, the more prominent prophet is quoted, even though the majority of the text didn't come from that prominent prophet. So when you're reading this and saying it fulfilled prophecy, oh, wait, it says something about Zechariah here. Where's the, where's the Jeremiah part? What's going to go on here? How do I reconcile this? The Bible's wrong. Everything I read is wrong. Don't worry. It's not that big a deal. It's a very small deal. The most prominent prophet is put first. So this fulfilled prophecy is good. We're fulfilling prophecy that the one who sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, the one who betrayed the Lamb of Israel would then use that funds to buy a potter's field. Now, what do we take out of this story of Judas? We take away one thing. The star witness in the case made up false accusations against Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is not guilty. That's the one thing we have to take away from this. If there was nothing said about Judas the rest of the Bible, and this wasn't actually tied up, that would be a problem. We wouldn't know. Was Jesus really innocent? Did Judas know something none of us else did? Did Jesus do something with the money on the side that we don't know about? What do we know? 
Well, the Bible very carefully ties up this loose end and says Judas was absolutely wrong. Jesus was innocent. We have a spotless lamb of God. Let's move to the Jesus and Pilate, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they have testified against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge. So the, governor's, so the governor was greatly amazed. Now, if you read the four different Gospels from here on in, the accounts are going to look very different. Why is that? Because each Gospel writer has a certain thing that they want to get across. Matthew, for some reason, wants to understand Jesus and Pilate. He wants us to understand Pilate and then his wife and then Pilate and the people. He wants us to understand what's going on there and how we get to this point. All right. John is very different. We're going to read a little bit from John. Luke is different. Mark is different because they all have their own perspective on the same set of events. Now, when they say they brought him before the governor, right now it's probably somewhere between 530 and 630 a.m. The people haven't gotten up. The sun is barely up. Pilate's probably barely up also. And they want to bring him in there and they want to get this done before the crowds show up. What happens if they let Jesus go? We got to get this done. And I really like the John, uh, the John testimony of this. Let me read just a little bit. John 18, verse 28 is where I'll be at. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. We'll come back and touch on that one. That's hilarious. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. Then the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Now, this is really interesting. This is the true heart of the Jewish leaders. They come to Pilate and they say, hey, here's a man, he deserves death. Don't worry about what he did. We wouldn't bring him to you if he wasn't a bad guy. Isn't that an interesting play together? Pilate goes, well, what are you bringing him for? Don't worry about it, he's a bad guy. What? Are you kidding me? He knows the Jews are out to do something bad. He knows there's something going on with these leaders that is not good. And we'll learn about that too. He says to their face, you envy this man. You don't like him. But basically they're saying, Pilate, you need to kill this man for us because we can't do it ourselves. And for some reason, there must be some type of conscience going on because we know the Jews are very good at killing people. You guys remember Stephen? Not too long after this, He's in front of the Sanhedrin. He opens up. He sees the Lord. And what do they do? Do they go to the Romans to kill him? No. They pick up stones and they kill him right away. So the Jews can kill people. Let's not kid ourselves. They can do this. Is it legal? Eh, who cares? They can kill someone if they want to. Once they're dead, they're dead. Right? So they bring in Pilate and they say, Pilate, you got to kill this man. For some reason, we, we don't want to. 
I'm thinking it's probably their guilt. But we can't kill this man. And they trump up these charges. He says, hey, Jesus, they're setting up, Jesus is setting himself up as a king. And you'll see if you read on in John, he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king, but not in the way you think. I'm not a king of this world. Which is interesting to Pilate. And he thinks about it. And he asks him again. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? He said, well, you have said so. Now, why did Jesus answer in this way? It's very simple. He's telling Pilate, yes, I am a king. Yes, I am the king of the Jews, but not in the way that you think. You have said it so. Remember, when we answer a question yes, we're answering everything about that question too as a yes. If someone says, are you rich? And I answer, well, yes, I'm rich. And then they, well, you kind of drive a terrible car. You don't dress that nice. Your house isn't that nice. What do you mean you're rich? Well, I'm rich in heaven. I get heavenly rewards. You go, well, I asked you a question. You didn't really answer it right. Because when you say yes to a question, I'm agreeing with everything behind that question. Jesus isn't agreeing with everything. He's saying, no, I am the king of the Jews, just not the way you think I am. I'm qualifying this. And he says, you have said so. You say that I'm a king of Jews? Okay. Now the accusations start again. Now remember, the Jews don't go into Pilate's headquarters, the praetorium. They don't go into the judgment hall because they don't want to defile themselves in a Gentile place. So they're all outside. We don't know if it's a porch or if there's some type of stairs like we see today going into a legal building. But somehow Jesus is up on this pedestal with Pilate and the Jews are below, and they start yelling at him. Hey, hey, he did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. And Pilate again says, do you listen to what they're saying? Are you going to let them do this? And, Pilate's, and Jesus is quiet. Now what's interesting to me is that Pilate is amazed. Pilate, for all of his faults, has probably done thousands of trials. Thousands. And you learn something very interesting. When you talk to a judge or even talk to a counselor, there's some type of sixth sense that they have that I don't, that they can tell when a person is bad. They know when somebody is not good. They can tell something is off with this person. And does Pilate's spidey sense go off? No. He's sitting there going, man, I really like this guy. What's going on? Why do they hate him so much? He's completely innocent. Now, if we look at Luke, we find out now that there's a little bit of an intermission where Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Remember Herod? He beheaded John the Baptist because he liked the girls dancing, right? And then he sends back because Herod says the same thing as Jesus. Herod goes, this man's done nothing wrong to deserve this. So we have two guys that we know are not Christian men. We know they do not honor the Lord, but they both very clearly say this man is innocent. So the relationship with Jesus and Pilate is this. Pilate is absolutely amazed at Jesus. Now we come back and let's pick up in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner for whom they had wanted. And they had, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. 
Smart guy. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife had sent word, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Jesus saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now Pilate, when Jesus comes back, which is most likely what we're seeing here, there's a break. Pilate was amazed at Jesus, and then we have a little break where he goes to Herod and comes back. Pilate is furiously trying to figure out, how do I get Jesus off the hook? How do I get him out of the situation that he's in without looking like an idiot? How do I do this? And he says to himself, you know what? It's now about 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning. People are out and about, right? Remember, it's Passover. People are running around getting prepared for Passover. So they're seeing and hearing what's going on here. The crowd is starting to form. And he says, this is perfect. The crowd loves Jesus. Now remember, Pilate is not an idiot. He's a pretty decent governor, it sounds like. And we'll talk about his, his faults in a second. But he's not an idiot. he knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus has been around for a couple years now. He knows that people love Jesus and that Jesus loves the people. And if he can just wait a little bit longer, the people are going to set him free. And what better way to set him free than at this feast? For some reason, Pilate, at each major feast, would give up a prisoner, somebody who's been convicted. Most likely, these are times where somebody has broken Roman law, but not necessarily Jewish law. So it's not as big a deal as you would think, but this is a big deal. He would go and he would free a prisoner. Now think of this. Pilate is sitting on his judgment seat. He's preparing to give this huge judgment and talk to the people. And his phone rings, right? His phone doesn't ring. Hey, that was apropos. Whoever did that, that was perfect. <laughs> the phone rings and he looks down and it's his wife calling Right? Actually, it's somebody walking up to stop him. But right in the most crucial part, his wife calls. Now, I know, men, you've seen this before. You'll be in a meeting or you'll be in some place and your wife calls and you go, can't take that. <laughs> What's going to happen here? But Pilate, he's a good guy. He takes this call, right? And says, honey, what's going on? Husband, get rid of this guy. He's righteous. Notice, she doesn't say innocent. She doesn't say he's been treated unfairly. He is a righteous man. He's a perfect man. Honey, I know this is a perfect man. Get rid of him. Don't do this. Whatever you can do. So Pilate's on the phone taking this call. And what are the religious leaders doing? They're going throughout the crowd at the same time going, guys, we got to get rid of this Jesus guy. Whatever it takes. You want a new house? You want some money? We'll do whatever it takes, but we cannot let Jesus go free. So Pilate listens to his wife and says, you know, I, I, I think she's right. I think we got to let Jesus go. 
And I got this plan already in my brain. I'm going to talk to the people and they're going to free Jesus and it's going to be fine. Right? I'm sure he's thinking this to himself. So he turns around, unbeknownst to him, the chief priests and the leaders have been throughout the people. And he says, well, who do you want? Barabbas or Jesus? And all of a sudden, Barabbas! Can you imagine his shock? I had this done. Jesus was going to be free and I wasn't going to have to worry about this. What is going on? Now, at this point, it's important for us to do a little bit of history on Pilate so we know who he is. Pilate took over in 26 AD. So he's been probably the governor's five to seven years, depending on how this works out. He's been governor for a while. And when he first took over, it was a little bit of a bumpy ride. We find out from Josephus that Pilate took over, and when his troops marched into the city, they had pictures of Tiberius, who's the Caesar right now, on their shields, and they also had his likeness up on poles as they walked in. And of course, the Jews don't like that. That is a graven image of a god that you're not allowed to have. So they went and they told Pilate, you take those down. You take those down right now. Pilate says, I'm not going to take them down. I'm in charge. No, you take them down right now. And they proceeded to stop him from coming into the city. Some accounts say it was in an amphitheater. We're not sure completely, but thousands of Jewish people stop his troops. And Pilate says, you know what? If you don't move, I'm going to chop your heads off. And do you know what the people did? Here's my head. Go for it. And what happened to Pilate? He had to back down. What good is a governor of nobody? Right? So he had to back down. And because of that, the leaders sent a note to Tiberius, the Caesar, and said, you better watch this guy. We don't like him. Come about three years later, Pilate, again, puts these pictures on shields when a new set of guards come in. Same exact thing happens. Except this time, they don't go out and need to go that far. But basically, the people tell Tiberius, hey, Pilate did it again. What is going on with this guy? you got to get rid of him. Then another interesting thing happens. Pilate decides that we need a new aqueduct in Jerusalem. And instead of funding it out of Romans funds, he goes into the temple, takes the entire treasury, and decides to build an aqueduct. Why do I tell you all this? Why is this important to the story? Pilate and the Jews don't get along so well. And in fact, Pilate with the Jews doesn't really have a lot of power. They could at any time go to Tiberius and get him thrown out. And when you get thrown out as a governor, that's not a nice retirement. You're six feet under. That's where you leave. So Pilate, at this point, really doesn't have a ton of power, and he is really in a corner. These people want this guy named Barabbas over Jesus. Barabbas, think of it this way, Barabbas would be a terrorist that is Jewish, all right? And there's actually kind of an interesting example here with like Hamas, right? They live among the Palestinians, but even the Palestinians don't really like them because they are terrorists. They hurt everyone around them. They hate the Jews, but they don't really love their people either. That's Barabbas. He is a terrorist. Not only does he kill Romans, he kills Jews too. Nobody likes this guy. Nobody. So putting him out there against the man who goes around the country healing people, loving people, feeding people is a no-brainer. You want the world's worst terrorist or you want the world's most beloved man? Duh. Right? But somehow, 
these chief priests convince that we have to do something. And then Pilate asked the question, I think probably the most important question we have in the Bible. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What do I do with Jesus? We're going to talk about this some more, but it's pretty simple. He washes his hands of him. He says, you know what? Not my problem. This is your problem. And the people, of course, yeah, put his blood on our head. We don't care. At that point, it makes sense they would do that. But he washes his hands clear and he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Now, before he's crucified, he's scourged. Now, I just want to touch on this really quickly because it's important when we see Jesus and why he can't carry his cross. When you're scourged, it's a piece of wood about this long with a little leather strap on the end, probably about 10 to 12 straps on the end. And on the end of those leather straps were pieces of glass, pieces of iron, pieces of bone that have been sharpened. The idea here is to take chunks of meat out of the flesh. When you're scourged, and I don't know if this is a correct uh, number or not, but about 90% of people died when they were scourged. This is a terrible thing. This is a very painful thing. This is something that leaves you completely broken. He scourges Jesus, which is why we'll see in our story next week, Jesus can't carry the cross. He physically couldn't carry this cross. He's lost so much blood. Think, he's been beat up three or four times. His face is huge at this point. Huge and puffy. Now he's completely scourged, meaning all the flesh has been ripped off his back, probably. He's in bad shape. And then we see the soldiers. The verses that Morgan read at the beginning. They make fun of him, too. Now, Roman soldiers are trained to be brutal. If you're going to take over the world, I hate to say it, but you've got to be extremely brutal. That's the only way that you can take over and properly govern. And these soldiers really prove it. A man who's bleeding, who can probably barely stand up, he's been beaten within an inch of his life. What do they do? They shove a crown of thorns on him and they make fun of him. Talk about brutality at its best. These guys are so brutal. Can you imagine that today? The brutality of that? It wouldn't happen. They'll probably get on social media and say something bad about him. But this is totally brutal to his face, these soldiers. But this was all prophesied. This had to happen. If this did not happen, we, again, would not be here. So while we're sad, while we hurt, while this is hard to hear, remember this, Jesus did this for us. He did this for us. Now, three things I want you guys to take out of this this morning, please. First one, Jesus is absolutely innocent. Isn't that wonderful? When somebody says there's a perfect man, we think of somebody that's a really good person that hasn't done anything that we know about. Jesus is actually perfect. All of this, two full days basically of trial, an entire night, an entire day, they over and over and over and over say, Jesus is bad, Jesus is bad, Jesus is bad. The only thing they convict him on is something that he really is. That's it. He is a perfect man. At any time, if he really wanted to fight to get down or to not be guilty in this situation, he could have and he could have won. 
But as I said, he did this for us. The only reason he did this, the only reason he didn't prove his innocence is for us. Two, and this is Pilate's question. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? You realize we all have to answer this question? This is the most important question you will answer in your life. What do I do with this Jesus? Do I wash my hands clean of him and I let him go? Well, you can. That's going to lead to death. Well, do I say, let's crucify him. Let's get him out of my life. Let's kill him and get rid of him. Well, that'll lead to death too. Or do you turn to him as your savior and give your life to him? You have to answer this question. You cannot not answer this question. If you ignore the question, you're answering it. What do we do with Jesus? And once you do accept Christ as your savior, you still need to ask the question because we're not done. If Jesus is really the Christ, if he's really number one in your life, we don't sit on it. We need to tell the world. We need to act in a certain way. We need to love the Lord because our life is no longer our own. What do we do with this Christ? The last piece here is standing up to the mob. There's going to be mobs in your life just like Pilate faced. And we've got to answer that mob too of what are we going to do? Will we stand up and support Christ in that situation also? Or will we back down and fall away? Once you've answered the question, what do I do with this Christ? How far does it go in your life? How far are you willing to take it? Are you willing to have a mob attack you and tell you you're wrong, you're crazy? What are you thinking? That guy lived 2,000 years ago and he's dead. Are you willing to take that? Are you willing to have family members ostracize you and push you away? Are you willing to be an outcast for the Lord? Or will you back down and wipe your hands clean of him? When we look at this story, when we look at Jesus leading up to the cross, rejoice. Rejoice that this man who was crying tears of blood just not a night ago about the cup that was coming to him drank the cup fully. He took every single shred of judgment that was supposed to be on your and my head and he drank it. He emptied it so that we might be saved. Not just saved, do you understand this? Someday we are going to be like Christ and we will rise again and we will spend eternity with our God. We will spend eternity with our Savior. Not as nobodies, but as sons and daughters in his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you so much for the cross And Lord, as we read this story and we see the complete unfairness that Jesus was treated with, we see Pilate not standing up. We see the people turning on him quickly. 
We see all these things, but we know, Lord, that Jesus did this for us. We know that he went to that cross for us. We know that he died that horrible death for us. We know also, Lord, three days later, he was risen again, and he is in heaven right now, looking down and protecting us. I pray this morning, Lord, if there are any here that don't know your son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior, that you would just quicken their hearts to you, that you would help them know who your son is, that they would be saved. And I pray, Lord, for those that do know your son, that you would just help us to rededicate our lives each and every day to him. In your name I pray, amen.